Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm pleased to welcome Audio-Technica back as presenting partner for Season 4 of Let's Talk About Sects. Their support has meant a lot, and their equipment is a huge reason why the show sounds great. Be sure to check out their creator pack if you're looking at content creation yourself. And if you're not a producer, get onto their home audio setups to get your home entertainment on point. Find out more at audio-technica.com.au. Laura McConnell was born into a fundamentalist Christian sect that claims it has no name. Former member Elizabeth Coleman told Nathan Jolly for news.com.au earlier this year that it is of utmost importance to them that they do not have an official name or headquarters or centrally identifiable presence anywhere on earth. From his investigative reporting in 2013, Journalist Chris Johnston estimated there were 20,000 members in Australia and hundreds of thousands around the world. Sometimes referred to as the truth, the two-by-twos or the friends and workers, the sect has seen multiple leaders face accusations of child sexual abuse, some of which are currently in court. Laura and many former members believe that this highly secretive group should certainly be considered a cult. Welcome to Season 4 of Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we continue, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also touches on the sexual abuse of minors, and there is mention of suicide and murder. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening to. William Irvine was born on the 7th of January 1863 in Kilsyth, Scotland. From the age of 20, he worked his way up the ranks of Baird and Cosbothwell Collieries to the position of general manager, 
but then resigned at the age of 30 to follow his faith calling and study at the Bible Training Institute in Glasgow. From 1895, William began working with Faith Mission, an independent Methodist evangelistic movement who took the word of the Lord to rural Scotland. The following year, he became an outreach preacher for the movement in Ireland, but by 1897 he was becoming tired of organised religion and began some moves away from the Faith Mission. By August of that year, William was holding his first independent mission in North Tipperary County, Ireland, where he met a lay preacher named Edward Cooney. In 1899, William embarked upon an experimental mission to Scotland, where he preached Jesus' Matthew 10 instructions, in which Jesus sent his disciples out to cleanse the world of impure spirits and relied on God to provide, taking very few belongings of their own. William termed this the Alpha Message, and along with members of the Faith Mission who had joined him on this trip, he managed to gain converts to his message. Believing now that this was what God really wanted his people to do, William started his own movement. In 1900, the Faith Mission formally disavowed any association with William and any of their followers who were involved with him as the growth of his movement began to be seen as a threat to the more mainstream churches, who were losing members of their own congregations. In 1901, the lay preacher Edward Cooney left the Church of Ireland to join William. William required of the ministers that he recruited that they sell all their possessions and hand over the proceeds, which Ed Cooney did. The ministering team became known as the Tramp Preachers or the Go Preachers. Home churches became a part of the movement in around 1902, and in 1903 they held their first convention with 70 attendees in Rathmullion, Ireland. They vowed to live in poverty, submission, self-denial and celibacy, and rejected Orthodox Christian beliefs to follow William's beliefs instead. Also in 1903, William travelled to the United States. The movement was by now growing quite rapidly and tensions began to arise, with some families objecting to members selling all their possessions to join the work, and some couples being split up in order to form into single-sex pairs for preaching. In 1904, William introduced a doctrine that said that salvation could only be gained through hearing the preaching of one of their ministers. This was known as the Living Witness Doctrine and could be viewed as a pretty major step into exclusivity. William had been using his connections to access church properties to preach from himself, only to then denounce those very institutions from the pulpit, and he was soon barred from the buildings of various denominations. Edward Cooney also preached publicly in strong language that all other denominations were damned, and crowds formed when the movement performed outdoor baptisms in local bodies of water which they did even during the winter. The press started to cover their antics, and questions were raised in the British Parliament. Nathan Jolly wrote that the first mention of followers, as two-by-twos, having reached Australia, was in the newspaper New Zealand Truth in 1907. In 1908, William made a distinction between workers and friends, whereby workers were those who had given up all of their possessions in order to preach, and friends were members who continued to do regular work and use their money to support the workers. 
He also selected some male workers as overseers who would be in charge of specific geographical areas. The money that came in from the sale of workers' possessions and from donations of friends was put in bank accounts under William's name and the names of some overseers. The 1910 United Kingdom Convention attracted 2,000 attendees. Then in 1914, William preached an Omega Gospel, in which he claimed that he had a revelation that the Age of Grace would end in August of that year, and that missionary activities should cease while members wait with him for the end of time. The overseers didn't like the sound of this, and Nathan Jolly reported that Australian overseer John Hardy led the charge to expel William Irvine from leadership. Ex-member Elizabeth Coleman told the journalist that William had also been exposed for inappropriate behaviour with female workers, and that from here the two-by-twos forbade mention of his name, and instead claimed they were the only church not started by a man, and were descended directly from Jesus. The ousting of William Irvine from the movement that he founded was the beginning of what would become extreme levels of secrecy within the two-by-twos. Members were directed to keep a low public profile and also to begin dressing more conservatively. Anyone who continued to support William was excommunicated. Edward Cooney felt that he was the rightful successor to leadership and was resistant to what he saw as a push for the movement to be more conventional. He was becoming a squeaky wheel at conventions, and so the other overseers sent him to Australia, where he initially gained support, but was officially kicked out in 1928 after he visited William Irvine in Ireland. There still remain some followers of Ed Cooney in Australia, New Zealand and Ireland, who are known as Cooneyites, though quite often the name Cooneyite is used by others to refer to two-by-twos who are not, in fact, true Cooneyites. Confusing, I know, but so it is with a group that claims to have no name. Following Ed Cooney's departure, the movement introduced rules that no worker would teach or preach anything contrary to what the worker in whose field he was labouring believed without his permission, and if a worker decided to preach anything which the workers as a whole did not agree with, he was to go to a part where the workers had never been in order to do so. From here, the movement retreated further into secrecy and obscurity, and it's hard to find out much more about them until 1982, when a book called The Secret Sect was independently published by Doug and Helen Parker. Copies of the book are quite rare today, and paperbacks sell secondhand on Amazon for over $200 a pop, so I'm afraid I haven't been able to read it. The movement's leadership worked hard to keep the book away from members, apparently not wanting them to learn about the sect's origins. And one reviewer on Amazon suspects that workers purchase and destroy any copies available in order to further hide the truth about their origins. The book was the first work to bring any real outside awareness to who the 2 by 2s were and where they had come from. And while some further books and letters brought more attention into the 1990s, It was only when former members started connecting over the internet that serious allegations about the organisation began to emerge.
day-to-day life as a 2 by 2 member involves meetings on Sundays and Wednesdays. The odd Sunday afternoon gospel meeting might be held in a hired hall, with workers preaching, and that's a meeting that outsiders are able to attend. But if an outsider is there, they probably won't get much of an impression of the inner workings of the movement. Outsiders I've met who attended meetings said they were pretty dull. Sunday morning and Wednesday evening meetings are in people's homes, usually the home of the most respected local community members, who will also be the ones to house any visiting pair of workers. Nothing is written down, and meetings involve taking turns speaking about something from the Bible, which former member Laura McConnell told me is usually a very literal interpretation of a passage from the King James Bible. Children are expected to sit quietly for the duration, which sounds like a pretty tall order for a child. Cody Boyt, who spent his early childhood in the movement in California, wrote on Quora, It was probably a similar expectation to the way children were expected to behave at the table in the 1800s and earlier. If we did speak up, make noise, fidget too much, or otherwise fail to adhere to the expectations of the group, we would be taken into the bathroom and spanked. Hymns are sung, but no music accompanies them except maybe some piano on rare occasions. The word somber comes up a lot in describing two-by-two meetings. Laura says that the lack of church buildings is a key part of the belief system, that you don't need big, elaborate buildings to demonstrate your devotion to God. Laura explains some more about their beliefs to me. Probably the way I sort of start out by describing them is to think of a very conservative Christian view of the world. So, you know, in a nutshell, take everything you know about Christianity and make it as conservative as you possibly can and you're pretty close to what they believe in. And then on top of that, there's a whole lot of cultural behaviours which define us um, as opposed to any other group. So, you know, aside from being very Christian, very, very conservative Christians, um, there is no written materials. So everything we share is done through word of mouth or preaching. Um, There is no um, information, you know, written down in books, for instance, um, which makes the group really difficult to examine and to dissect because nothing is, you know, formally written down, which means that every time you go to a worker or you go to a leader and try and dispute claims or put things to them in court, for instance, in the case of abuse, they can dispute it because there's nothing written down by them. Children go to regular schools, but only up to a point. And in the workforce, members tend to keep to themselves. We're taught to keep ourselves separate. So, And I think this is also similar to the Brethren and the Plymouth Brethren, is that we're taught um, almost to distrust the outside world and to interact with them when we must, but not, you know, not, to, not to take it too seriously, not to go too deep with them. And that's part of the secretiveness too. So we're taught not to make friends. We're taught not to fraternise, to do what you need to do, not to break the law in order to, to make a living, but certainly do not embed yourself in their lives, keep yourself very distant from them, which means that, yes, often people do work and do go to school, but they keep themselves very separate. We are, women in particular, are very discouraged from working outside the home. However, there are some industries which are acceptable, things like nursing and teaching, so long as they're not seen to be fraternising in any way that they, you know, very serious about making sure their appearance always adheres to what it should. But then, you know, you stand out so much that most women don't work for very long outside the home because it's not comfortable for them and it's quite lonely. And then same with schooling. Most truth children do go to school, uh, certainly to primary school, into mainstream schools, but again, would never ever participate in things like excursions or sleepovers or parties. Um, Very much taught to keep ourselves separate from our peers, which is very lonely for a child and quite, quite mean. 
and then usually um, girls in particular will go to high school, but only for a couple of years, and then they will usually stop, you know, because the peer pressure, you know, I mean, you can imagine not looking like the other girls, not watching TV, not knowing anything about kind of pop culture. is very divisive for girls. So they drop out and usually marry quite young. Boys might finish school, but certainly they go on to work in family industries and family um, vocations um, inside our own businesses or inside farming families, um, usually not in mainstream careers. Family industries might include steel businesses, multi-generational farms, plumbing, mechanics, that kind of thing. While TVs, radios and dancing were banned, I've heard that some of those rules have loosened up in some of the less strict communities. Possibly because the internet has become crucial to running a business, and once you have the internet, what's the point in barring TV and radio? Followers in the USA are told not to vote, as they can leave this up to God, whereas they have to vote in Australia by law. We're told just not to break the law. You know, we're told um, just to do what you need to do. Um, Don't engage with it, really, but just do that, you know, vote so you don't get, um, so you don't get fined. You know, in America, that would mean not engaging with politics at all. But um, certainly in Australia, we're taught to engage only with the voting process, Um, not really that we should do it in order to get a certain outcome. Um, The only thing I would say is that they're very conservative. So um, if they had even an iota of interest, they would be voting very conservatively, Um, but certainly not um, taking an active stance on politics at all. If you've listened to earlier episodes of this podcast, you'll be familiar with the criteria I use to define a cult. As you know, it can be a pretty amorphous term, and the two-by-twos are quite an interesting example of a deviation here. Laura McConnell felt that they met two of the three criteria easily. One, who believed that they exclusively have access to the truth and the rest of the world is wrong. I think that one's pretty clear and goes back to the name that Laura refers to them as, the truth. Former member Elizabeth Coleman told Chris Johnston for The Age, quote, They believe that all other religions in the world are the work of the devil. Going to worship at another church or finding another set of beliefs is considered worse than leaving the religion. Laura shared what she was taught about those not following the truth. Well, we're really taught not to put too much thought into them. You know, other than that, they're not saved. You know, you know we're not... We're not you're not going to get anything from them. You know, you, you're not, um, there's no point in being friends with them. Um, they're the devil. Um, if you're not focused on our way, you know, you're going to hell. So, you know, we were really just taught to distrust anyone outside the group and not to believe that they were good people, um, which is quite problematic when you leave. <laughs> you realise actually that's not true. <laughs> um yeah, I think there's a big piece there about trust where we're, we're, yeah, we're very much taught not to trust anyone outside our own community. And the second of the criteria that fits, highly secretive about their workings to outsiders. Again, pretty plain to see here and maybe more core to this group than any other I've looked at, except perhaps Outreach International. And even they have a website now. The other one, though, dominated by a charismatic leader or leadership that closely controls members is a little trickier. Having ousted first William Irvine and then Ed Cooney back in the day, who even is the leadership of the two-by-twos? Laura told me about her impressions of the leadership. What they have is secretiveness, but what they don't have, which is, you know, a bit different to the other groups, is a charismatic leader. Um, I would say that the leadership is 
not particularly charismatic. It's more it's more insidious. Evan probably was the you know the original well he was the original person who set it up and he probably was a very charismatic leader. Um, and then from there, I think the way that he set up the leadership structure underneath him basically had him thrown out um, because. Um, he really set it up in a way where people went out from what I can understand, you know, in groups of two um, and stayed in people's homes and there was no official leadership structure but there was a lot of kind of substructures that were informal and that informal leadership eventually threw him out, um, which is just the most hilarious thing. I mean, can you imagine being thrown out? Of <laughs> like, anyway, I just think the man who started the thing wasn't good enough for it. What chance have any of us got? <laughs> Um, so anyway, look, he, he was thrown out and then the leadership structure really became this very subtle, secretive structure. Um, of course, from the, from the inside, you don't really realise what the leadership structure is because you're raised to believe there is no leader. But of course, when you look from the outside, you can now see that they live in your home. They travel from place to place across the regions, you know, in these pairs, um, to, you know, two men, two women um, across different regions, across all of the developed world and some of the undeveloped world. And they're observing your behaviour. They're influencing your behaviour from inside your house. You're used to being scrutinised and on show and having to, um, you know, live up to these these people, which, you know, we're not, we're not allowed to think of as leaders or as a leadership structure. So, you know, and they do the most hilarious things in order to control, you know, this really kind of manipulative behaviour, like starting rumours about people, you know, like about the length of your dress or about the length of your hair or about the idea that maybe your hair might be dyed, um, you know, that someone maybe didn't wear stockings or their shoes were open-toed, you know, like really silly things. And that is in itself a really kind of insidious control structure. Um, and, you know, they do really hilarious things. Like I look back now and think about the stories I heard of them ripping TV antennas off people's houses and off people's in radio antennas, off people's cars, you know, because we're not allowed to have kind of worldly influences, which includes, you know, TVs and radios. So there's this structure that we don't recognise as being leadership, um, which really just permeates through the whole thing. I couldn't quite get my head around the structure beyond the so-called workers and the friends, which I think is how many followers feel. I asked Laura about whether the workers then reported upwards to someone else. Well, I didn't realise that um, until later years, that yes, there is an unofficial leader for each um, country, um, and usually that's the oldest living male worker, although that's not always the case. Um, some of them, as they get too old, will pass it on to the next person, I think. But yeah, I mean, but I didn't realise that as a child. I didn't realise that the people coming to our house, had there was this kind of different hierarchy within that, um, that's also very subtle and very secretive. Journalist Chris Johnston looked into the sect in 2013 for The Age, and you can read his work linked in the show notes. He's still keeping across developments today, and he spoke to me for this episode about his investigations. His view on the leadership structure was that it fed back into a few key families, and it varies across Australia. Sort of state by state. So... Um It's usually one man, and um, and that man will have a male assistant, like a PA, who who who. For example, in Queensland at the moment, the PA, who's just a helper, like emails, letters, 
just, you know, shit kicker, basically, but he's also very influential and powerful. So there's leader, leader's helper, and then there's the trustees, the guys who hold the money. Um, and there might be one, two or three of those. And then, and then there'll be, you know, a sort of hierarchy down um, through the ranks of the, of the sect and through a sort of familial type rank as well. So certain families can become very powerful. Laura suspects the same. It's large family groups, I think. Um, and, you know, and I, I, maybe I don't have the answer to this 100% yet either, but I think it's large family groups. If I think where the money's going and where the power's going, it's going into large family groups that are inheriting the property of other families that are benefiting by having workers staying in their home um, and the workers then reinvesting whatever cash they've got into these, farm, into these family farms. So, yeah, I, and I don't know that I'm fully clear on that either. There's a site maintained at workersect.org whose mission is to document the history and doctrines of three interconnected and little-known nameless sects, including the two-by-twos as the biggest of the three. This site describes its leadership as follows. The sect has a distinct, though often denied, hierarchy consisting of overseers, senior workers and elders, which developed under George Walker, William Gill, William Jamison, Jack Carroll, William Hughes and other early leaders. My researcher, Hayley Gray, broke down the organisational structure as follows. Each country is divided into regions, usually by state. There is a male overseer who oversees the region, and he has absolute authority over the members and ministers below him. Members may follow his commands as if they were God's commands. Regions are then broken into fields, and fields are assigned a pair of ministers, which are the two-by-two workers, each year. The pair of ministers itself has an older member who has authority over a younger member. The pairs can be male pairs or female pairs, but Laura told me that women are always subservient to men. The pairs are not allowed to marry and are meant to be celibate. They live with members in their assigned field and take no salary, but there are many reports of money being given to them via secret handshakes. Fields are then broken up into house churches with up to 35 members, and an elder is appointed to each house church. Elders announce the start of the meetings, but can be appointed or demoted at will by those above, so their powers are limited. Members or friends are expected to attend every meeting unless seriously ill. Each year there are also larger conventions that members are expected to attend. I have to say that many elements of this organisation remind me of Outreach International from Season 2, Episode 3 of this podcast. Nathan Jolly, who spoke with ex-member Elizabeth Coleman for news.com.au, wrote in February this year, quote, The yearly camp conventions that members attended were filled with horror stories of those who left the group and were struck dead in an accident within days or weeks. This was divine punishment, according to the leaders. In Australia, the 2 by 2 communities are very regional. You'll find them in rural farming areas across the country. I spoke to some friends in regional New South Wales who grew up with 2 by 2 communities, their children attending schools together, 
and they told me that the people were generally well respected as smart farmers, hard workers and upstanding citizens. The men were harder to pick, but you could always tell the women by their intricate hair buns and conservative clothing. A lack of jewellery and makeup might also tip you off. They were sometimes referred to by locals as the black stockings. Laura McConnell was born into the 2 by 2s and her family's involvement went back four generations on her mother's side and three generations on her father's side. All of my family were rural, and, and it's common across the truth is that people come from rural backgrounds and, that you know, they usually come from communities which are very isolated and a little bit lonely anyway um, when you're from a farming community. And so, you know, these preachers would have come across them through, you know, through coming through their communities and their towns, and um, they would have, you know, enjoyed having company, I think, um, and probably were attracted to it because of that fact that they were rural. So, you know, my, my grandparents and my father's parents converted after they'd lost a child to, to SIDS. They lost a baby um, to sudden infant death. Um, and so I can see that they were sad and um, a little lost. And then on, on my mother's side, her great-grandmother, sorry, her grandmother, my great-grandmother, was actually um, in and out of mental institutions. So she had um, very serious what they called at the time manic depression or what we would probably now know as bipolar um, and she was a vulnerable person. Um, and on the other side of my mother's family, they had lost a family farm in the Depression. Um, and, you know, they were they were used to having money and they were feeling very vulnerable, I think. So I, I can see that there was like this trauma and loss in each of their lives and they were searching for something. Um, and I think that's what led them into it. Like many, I was really curious about this aspect of the movement that claims they have no name. And I wondered whether Laura was directed on what to tell outsiders about her beliefs if they asked. Well, not specifically. We mainly told that people wouldn't understand, that people, you, that, you know, that they're not saved. We're the saved ones. Don't worry about them. Um, just sort of fob them off. So I guess um, I was taught that, you know, they're just not our people and they just won't understand us. So we're just sort of taught to say, well, you know, we're just, we're just normal Christians, just Christians, and then to, you know, maybe invite them to a to an event or something where we might be able to teach them or show them how we live. But it's more about um, demonstrating how how godly we are than it is about talking about it. So yeah, there's really a very we're told to be vague, basically, which is you know we don't even know ourselves how to articulate our belief most of the time. I asked Laura whether there was much of a focus on bringing more people into the movement. I would say probably in the 19 years I was in there. I saw maybe two to three people convert, um, and normally they were older people who had already been associated with it in some way, so they were a, a relative or, or, you know, a distant relative of a family that was already in there that had what we called straight away. So, you know, this whole conversion thing is really interesting in hindsight. Like we have these things called gospel meetings on a Sunday afternoon in a, in a large hall in a town where people are welcome to come. Very few people do um, from the outside come along. Um, and those who do, like, they come to one and they're quite confused about what they've come to and they never come back because everything's very secretive. Um, and so I always wondered, like, who are we converting? <laughs> and, and now that I look back, we're not converting very many. Laura didn't have much of an impression about the size of the following when she was younger. It's only in hindsight, really, that I sort of think through how many people there were. We, we never really talk about numbers or however many there are. And I suppose it's because we're in our own insular communities. And especially as a child, you know, you're only really interested in your own kind of space, aren't you? It's only really now as an old adult, I look back and think, you know, I wonder how many there were. Um, and, you know, no one openly talks about these numbers. But if I think back to 
the large conventions that I alluded to earlier every year um, held across states where, you know, there's sort of two or four, depending on the size of the state, large congregations come together each year around Christmas time. Um, I think there's at least 2,000 in Victoria and certainly double that in the likes of Queensland and New South Wales. And then, you know, places like America and Canada have got equally as large congregations. Um, uh, you know, places like South Korea have a growing um, congregation. So, look, it is really hard to know, um, but certainly I believe there's at least 2,000 in Victoria and at least 4,000 in New South Wales. Laura really never felt like she had much in common with the other followers, aside from her involvement with the movement. I think I have always stood out. There was always something about my personality that didn't quite fit in and probably eventually why I left. Um, I was always a little bit outlandish, a little bit loud. I asked too many questions. So not really the kind of person that fits well with the kind of personality that fits into these fundamentalist groups. What I had in, in common was my family and my community. Um, and certainly by the time you've been in the three and four generations I've been in, you know, the truth is your life. You don't you don't know anyone outside. You know, all my cousins, my second, third cousins, all of my family are inside this group. So the truth was my life. So it wasn't, you know, that I had any specific belief in common with them. It was that they were my life. Nature versus nurture is always an interesting dynamic to mull over. And I often come down on nurture being the most important thing, or at least the one we have some control over. But clearly Laura's nature wasn't a great fit for the two-by-two's way of doing things. I have seen people who um, suppress parts of their personality in order to fit in because, you know, the nature stuff, the nurture is more overwhelming, the, the need to fit in is more important to them than um, the need to be authentic. So, yeah, but that's not easy. That's a hard thing to do. Christina Rasmussen left three years ago at the age of 43 and she told Alice Walker for SBS's Insight program in June this year, quote, About 40, I started, I guess, a path of self-discovery and who I actually am, not defined by the parameters of what a cult woman should be, which is hugely different from what I am by nature, and that's intelligent and a feminist and have this incredible core value of wanting to serve the community. And that's not encouraged because a community outside the cult you're not meant to mix with. For a long time, you live a lie. Laura thinks that many aspects of life in the movement that she calls the truth are not particularly unique. Look, I actually think the truth is actually very similar to other fundamentalist Christian groups. Um, I wouldn't have said that in my early years on the outside. I didn't realise that there were other groups like ours or that, in fact, there were other groups full stop. But once you've been out for a little while, you realise actually some of the, the ways that they deal with power and control and that the way that they... Um, see the world as dangerous and evil. It's actually very similar to the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, the Brethren, the Plymouth Brethren, Brethren and the like. Um, so a lot of other fundamentalist Christian groups are actually very similar. Um, you know, the, the, the idea that the world is really dangerous and that there's no other group that you can belong to that, um, that could, you, know, you can be saved in. Um, but I think um, there, there are similarities across those groups. Obviously, they're... they're the belief system can be a bit different, but the similarities in the way they control people um, is actually very similar. I asked Laura about the workers who travelled through the communities in pairs and how often a community might expect them to stop by. Uh, look, it really depends on where you live. Um, certainly we – they look, they move from home to home throughout the year and then at the end of the year they have a large convention in, in several states um, where they all congregate and then they would go out from there again. So, look, uh, growing up they would come to stay with us for maybe three weeks of the year 
um, maybe two weeks at the start of the year, two weeks at the end of the year. Um, uh, yeah, some people, they favoured more than others. That was also a bit of their control and power piece where, you know, you knew you were in with them if they liked to stay with you and they liked to stay a long time with you. That was sort of seen as being a little bit of a prestige, but in reality they're sponging off you, aren't they? You know, I mean, why wouldn't you stay with the people with more money? <laughs> why wouldn't you stay with people who drive a Mercedes versus Honda? Because um, you get to drive their car. So, yeah, I mean, it, that, that in itself is, is power, right? It's like, well, I favour these people because their dresses are the right length and their hair's the right, you know, done up the right way and they wear the right shoes and also they've got a Mercedes. So it's, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, when I was growing up, it, you know, we felt privileged to have them in our home. Of course, now, all this time later, I realise some of them were, in fact, sexual predators, you know, because this is the other thing. They're in your home. When Chris Johnston was looking into the 2x2s in 2013, it was because he had been contacted by former member Elizabeth Coleman. Elizabeth, uh, her father was an elder and and she got out, um, has stayed um, sort of within the Christian church, but in a, in a good way, not a, you know, for good, not evil. <laughs> um, in fact, she works in a Christian school in, in Canberra. Um, uh, so I think she was my entree, I think, because it was like before I was like looking at the Jehovah's Witnesses and um, and child sexual abuse allegations and um, things being swept under the carpet. And I think I think from memory, Elizabeth went, well, actually, uh, you should take a look at this other mob because they're, you know, more sizable probably. And um, and where you're sitting, she said to me, in Melbourne or Victoria, there's, it's all happening, which it was at the time. You may remember Chris from our bonus episode about the family, which I released following the death of founder Anne Hamilton Byrne. Chris has a real interest in exposing child abuse and cover-ups within sects. Yeah, so there were, there were, there were active cases. So there was, there was one guy about to be charged and one guy who had just been charged a couple of years before um, and was back out in the community. And, yeah, like I say, another guy about to be charged on uh, 12 charges. So it was kind of like, yeah, it was a period of figuring out what they were all about and figuring out, um, I guess, how they operated, like how many people were involved what, what was happening with the money, um, and then digging into this child sexual abuse, which turned out to be rife, and, um, and that the, the organisation was unaccountable. Unsurprisingly, Chris faced some challenges looking into such a secretive movement. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, um, it's a bit of a hurdle to jump over when you want to, as you've faced, when you want to start investigating something and they don't have any name or financial structure or um, or, or any um, administrative framework on which to hang your hat. Um, there isn't anything, um, which was frustrating for a while, but once I cracked it, it was okay. Once I, once I started publishing 
stories on them, then the phone started ringing and the emails started pinging, which is often the way. And then I, and then I was sort of more able to figure out um, the deeper, darker stuff, like like the, like all the child sexual abuse, um, and I guess the manner in which it was able to be hidden and uh, not dealt with and covered up um, in, in a sort of what would you say, like in an endemic way throughout the whole organisation in every state of the of Australia and also every country where they exist, which is mainly the United States, Canada, New Zealand and Australia, uh, I understand, and the UK. Elizabeth Coleman told Chris back in 2013, quote, If something happened between a minister and a young girl or a young boy, it would be swept under the carpet. The minister would be moved away and nothing would be said. The families would be outraged, but they would also be scared of being kicked out of the tribe. I have reason to believe this is still going on. Chris Johnston's impression to this day is that child sexual abuse is rife throughout the movement. I asked him if he'd formed any idea of why this might be. I think it's a number of things. I think, well... One of the sect's main practices, and it's where they get their two-by-two two name from, is is a practice of ministers who are very senior people within the church, usually men, um, going as a pair into an area and living in living with congregation members or church members as their sort of personal guide. So the, the sort of path to righteousness in the sect is to do that, to be one of the two-by-twos or the workers. It's called the work when they do this. And they can stay in someone's house um, in regional Australia, usually in the house of a family who's been in the sect for generations anyway. Thus, on the face of it, putting children at, at risk anyway. Now, a lot of these workers are unmarried celibate men um, it was, it's been put to me that people who sort of stick with it through the generations or through the family or through the sort of town life or whatever are, are um, generally quite, quite sort of odd and, and not, not um, what would you say, like not, not really of this time and place, like old-fashioned, um, deeply conservative, um, often celibate, um, and suddenly they're, they're, they're in, in the homes of um, regional families, farmers usually, very isolated, um, in a culture that will turn a blind eye to, to complaints if the complaints even happen. It seems to me it's, it's almost like a, I hesitate to say an accepted part of their practice, but, a, but it's certainly a long-standing sort of stain on, on, on what they do and how they go about things. And if you count up the numbers of blokes who have been pinged um, just, in the, just in this country, really, just in Australia, it's a long list, a long list. And, and people disappear. They, they, they end up in, in ministries in developing countries. You know, they can be shuffled off. Um, one of the guys I wrote about in The Age... Um, was in Uruguay and Brazil for long periods. Um, Papua New Guinea is another place where people disappear to. 
and they can be shuffled off on another sort of ministry to another state or another part of the state. It's, it's, it's very odd and really disturbing. And um, some of the sexual abuse um, that is alleged and that has also been proven is horrific. I asked Laura whether she'd been aware of child sex abuse allegations while she was involved. Uh, yes, child sexual abuse and abuse in general is rampant. Um, I don't know why it's so bad, possibly the secretiveness of the church and our um, reluctance to trust um, people like the police. So in my experience, there isn't a woman in my extended family who hasn't experienced either grooming or um, abuse. And the group is very, very good at covering it up and ignoring it and spreading rumours about people who dare to raise it. Um, It's not just sexual abuse either. It's financial abuse, coercion and control of women and children. I think people are terrified of the world outside. No one would dare report it. And the very few people who do discuss it have nowhere to go to, to take action. So there's no, you know, there's no power structure. There's no leadership structure that's known to us in order to take it somewhere and get something done with it. And, and so there's no one, you know, who can help us resolve it. And so it just gets swept under the carpet. And the few that have gone to court, um, you know, terrifyingly, you see that the people involved are still participating in the group, are still in positions of power. So it's not a nice place for women. So, yeah, I did know it was happening in answer to your question. Yes, I did know it was happening. That I, I, There's a man very recently in my own family that's been convicted of multiple child sex crimes, and he's my uncle. I knew him. I knew he was abusing. I remember being 10 or 11 years old and being told that I should keep away from him, that he was, you know, an abuser. So, yeah, women know that it's happening. They're telling girls. They're talking amongst themselves about it. Everything happens. Yeah, and, I, you know, I came into contact with several other known child sex offenders, um, Ernie Barry, Chris Chandler, both convicted child sex offenders. So, yeah, it's, our community's got a very big problem with it. It strikes me that cover-ups of child sexual abuse is not peculiar to the two-by-twos. We've all seen instances within the Catholic Church across the media of late. But the really worrying thing is that with a group who claims they don't even really exist and claim that they have no organisational structure, how can anyone be held to account? Unfortunately, it doesn't seem as though an awful lot improved following Chris Johnson's reporting in 2013. Just last year, 60 Minutes Australia released a segment about the 2x2s in which further allegations along these lines were raised. The segment is currently unable to be viewed by the public due to suppression orders around an active court case, but Chris had some interesting insights here as well. He's been looking into the finances. As every journalist knows, you've got to follow the money. It it looks like that we're looking at, you know, multiple millions of dollars per state per state and territory. Um, So there's no outgoings, really, although there's strong suggestions that when when their men end up in court for fiddling with the kids that it's all paid for out of this. Um, 
And uh, there used to be a series of trusts called the Christian Conventions. So in Victoria, it was the CCOV, the Christian Conventions of Victoria Trust. It was a registered charity. And um, it didn't hold the money, but it gave the names of the guys who held the money. And they hold the money in private bank accounts. But anyway, it turns out that this Christians of Christian Conventions of Victoria registered charity was deregistered late last year in November 2019. It was closed. Um, and this was a matter of months after the National Redress Scheme was announced by the government, the federal government, by Scott Morrison, I think, after the after one of the Royal Commissions. Um, and he said, um, uh, all religions and religious groups have got to sign up to this thing where you will lose your charity status. Um, and, in, and by signing up for it, you also obviously um, can, people can seek redress from you. So victims, survivors, whatever, can come and say this happened and there's, then there's a system to pay them compensation. Uh, and so Christian Conventions of Victoria promptly shut their charity. So they sort of shut the door. And that's to put them further away from being pinged by any national redress screen. So they've, they, they sort of, they, they almost didn't exist before, except for this registered charity, which other states would also have variations of. That's, that was the only trace of them. So they shut it. Because after six, this was around 60 minutes time as well, and um, there was a flood of uh, uh, survivors coming forward. I think they're just trying to protect the money. One thing Chris told me sounded quite promising, at least initially. It involved actual paperwork and writing things down, which, as you've heard, would be quite a departure for the two-by-twos. Queensland's in the frame at the moment because... After 60, 60 minutes really shook them up. It really, it really gave them the willies. So um, don't forget, this is a, a sect or a cult. I prefer sect with this mob um, um, who don't want anyone to know of their existence and, um, you know, deny their existence and operate in secret. And suddenly they were... Um, they were on 60 Minutes and they didn't like it very much. And a um, couple of states and territories, um, I know Victoria were quite proactive in this and the Northern Territory um, got all the other states and territories together to sign a child safety protocol. So a piece of paper from the organisation signed by all the state bosses saying... Um, kind of like a mandatory reporting type thing. Um, so if, <laughs> which is absurd that it would even be needed, but um, pedophilia is rife in this organisation. Um, so, and all the states and territories were on board, even though it was a sort of a lip service type document and no one expected them to suddenly start outing the pedophiles in their midst. At least, you know, it was a piece of paper saying that they would. Um, 
Point being, though, Queensland refused to sign it. (laughs) And have just carried on. Here again, I want to be clear that I think freedom of religion is an important part of a progressive society. But when a sect like this teaches its followers not to engage with the police and to only participate in wider society to the extent that the law requires it, but feels itself to be above the law due to answering only to a higher power, surely a line needs to be drawn. Following the 60 Minutes coverage, New South Wales overseer Alan Kitto sent a letter out to followers. Quote, Dear friends, we want to be in touch with you all to address any confusion that may have arisen regarding how we deal with child sexual abuse cases, in brackets CSA. All the matters raised in the media had already been dealt with by the legal authorities. All our workers have already received professional training on what action to take in the event of any allegations of inappropriate behaviour toward children. We will continue to abide by all legal reporting requirements. We will also continue to support any official investigation into such matters and the outcomes that they arrive at. Yours sincerely, Alan Kiddo, on behalf of the New South Wales staff, 3rd of May 2019. I was able to access this copy through a message board where former members share information about the group's activities. And there's mention that victims have been sanctioned in some way or even threatened with excommunication in the past for reporting child sexual abuse. Laura had more to say about the dangers of groups like the 2x2s. What do I think is dangerous? Um, For me, it's the secretiveness um, and the lack of um, transparency about the way it operates. Um, Also, uh, the way that we speak about women and the way that women are controlled um, and their behaviour is um, highly regulated. Um, I, I think that's probably the part that, yeah, that bothers me the most is that people don't have the ability to live independently and so much of what they do is controlled by um, the truth and by, you know, subtle rules and regulations. Um, and, you know, also that they believe that they're the only church, the only way into heaven, which is obviously not true either. Um, I think people... Yeah, people don't get told the truth and don't make decisions for themselves. And I think that's dangerous because it doesn't raise you to have life skills and to be able to operate outside the community. I just think women in these groups have such little independence. And, you know, I see them thinking it's working for them until it's not working for them and they've got nothing. And that's when they've got no human rights, when they've got no education, when they've got no financial independence. Um, You know, that's dangerous. Chris suggests there's more to this as well. It's very insular, but there's a lot of them and they have a lot of money and they're, they're not accountable. Like, um, they just sweep things under the carpet and the children are really vulnerable, um, especially the girls but also the boys. And um, the people who leave, they have to deprogram like any ex-cult, ex-sect, you know, it's... It's all fine and good to walk away, but one thing that you and I have learned, Sarah, is that when you do that, it's another it's another decade or two or three before you can before you figure out who you actually are, rather than who they told you you are. And um, it's just, I mean, everyone I'm speaking to at the moment on this organisation um, is a woman between 40 and 60 who grew up in it and 
um, tried to get out and finally did. Um, and that means cutting ties with all family who are still in. It means possible financial um, problems. It means, um, you know, maybe, um, threats, um, intimidation, um, strange happenings, you know, um, wheels coming off cars, things like that, things being left at farm gates, things like that, phone calls, all this whole campaign goes on and, and it takes them years and years, like all ex-culties, to recover and deprogram. And it's, 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 it's so insidious. Cults have this fascination, obviously, and people are drawn to the weird stuff that goes on and the, and the um, bizarre side of it, which, you know, obviously is fascinating. Um, but really the human cost, especially with these big groups who go through generations and who families are sort of wedded to or rusted onto, it's, it's, it's mind control really and, it, and it's, it takes people, you know, like I've said, a long time to, to get better because they lose their sense of identity, you know, they don't know who they are, you know. So they have to find who they are at age 50 or something. And, I mean, who wants to do that? Yeah, they lose inheritances. They have to move far away so they don't get harassed. They have to change the locks. Uh, they have to um, go through it with their own kids or whatever. They have to, they have to do a bunch of stuff. And, and with some of them, they have to start going to the police and saying, this is what happened, you know, in, uh, in, in, on the farm. And and this guy was, you know, he was supposed to be the preacher or the 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 the, the god man. Following is a non-exhaustive list of court cases involving sexual abuse within the 2x2s, maintained on the workersect.org website. In 1997, worker Kurt Jacobson pleaded guilty to sexual abuse of a child in Oregon. In 2003, worker Noel Harvey was convicted of multiple instances of child sexual abuse in New South Wales. In 2007, worker Tim Severed was convicted in Minnesota for criminal sexual conduct. The same year, worker Reuben Matter was convicted of multiple sexual abuse crimes against children in California. In 2008, worker Darren Briggs was convicted of fourth-degree criminal sexual conduct, force or coercion, against an 11-year-old boy. In 2011, worker Bruce Woodell admitted to sexual molestation of a 7-year-old girl. The same year, worker Peter Mousseau was found guilty of criminal sexual conduct involving an 11-year-old girl in Michigan. Again in 2011, worker Ernie Barry pleaded guilty to multiple instances of sexual abuse of a child in Tasmania. Chris Johnston wrote, Police say they knew of another 12 alleged victims but could not lay further charges against Barry because the additional alleged victims would not come forward or press charges. In 2013, overseer Jerome Frandall was convicted for failure to report child sexual abuse that he knew about in Michigan. 
In 2014, worker Chris Chandler pleaded guilty to nine charges of child sexual abuse in Victoria, some apparently related to before he joined the 2x2s, where he was given a role in counselling victims of child sexual abuse as a worker. He was paired up with Ernie Barry in 1995 and passed away earlier this year. In 2016, senior worker Noel Tanner was found guilty of sexually abusing minor boys in 1984, 1991 and 2016 in the Republic of Ireland. The current court cases in Australia under suppression order add to this list, but keep in mind that with the secrecy of the group and the way that victims are encouraged to deal with their allegations, this is likely just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, they were told they were... um they might be told they were overreacting, they might be told they were lying, they might just not be listened to, um, they might, there might be a promise that the complaint will be forwarded but it never is or it is and it's ignored. Um, it's just a sort of, look, I think, th- I think things are, are changing a little in the more liberal states like Victoria where even, you know, <laughs> it, where even ultra-conservative um, uh, Christian sect members like this, you know, um, uh, you know, they're still Victorian. But if you go, if you go up to uh, uh, regional Queensland where all this stuff is happening at the moment, then you know, they're 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 more they're more um, stuck in their ways up there. They're more less they're less willing to change, and they're less willing to take on um, more liberal. Um, views, even if it's just lip service. Elizabeth Coleman told Nathan Jolly, quote, The group's insistence on protecting their system and reputation at all costs has come at a high price. Many victims ostracised and perpetrators protected. Survivors of abuse who try to seek justice for themselves are blamed for bringing the way into disrepute, an unforgivable sin in the eyes of the members and the leaders. Laura may sound pretty matter-of-fact about her experiences and her views of the two-by-twos, but I want to share her response to a question I asked her about whether any specific incidents came to mind when thinking about her time with the movement. Yeah, I don't. I try not to think too deeply about instances, individual experiences, um, because I find it quite distressing. Um, I try to keep my view of them quite high-level and quite um, generalist because Um, Some of the experiences I've had, I think, have left me with PTSD Um, and not just my experience inside the group, but also my experience of leaving the group has been quite distressing. Um, So, um, yeah, I try to be quite generalist in my um, memory of incidents so that it doesn't trigger me. Laura was an unusual case in this movement, as she touched on previously, but more than her personality not being a good fit for the group, she managed to do things that other young women would probably find impossible within the two-by-twos. I remember just thinking, I don't want to be like my cousins. This is not, I don't want the same life as my cousins. And so I actively sought out whatever it is, whatever it was they weren't doing. And that was education. Um, and, yeah, I remember learning as a sort of a 16-year-old, there's this thing called HEX, and you can go to university and you don't have to pay for it, which, of course, is not actually true. But, um, yeah, and I was just like, oh, that's good, I'm going to do that. Um, 
yeah, it still astounds me. <laughs> Laura's pursuit of education was the thing that would ultimately lead her out of the two by twos. Leaving home at 18, she headed off to university in Melbourne. So I left my own family community and came to Melbourne into a different community. So still part of the truth, but embedded in a different family group, I guess. And I remember very early on, you know, well, not, not, it was probably a year in, um, it was raining one Sunday morning and I was coming home from um, the Sunday morning meeting and I was, I didn't have a car. So I was at the tram stop and I was watching was pouring with rain and I was watching all of the other people from, from the meeting get in their cars and drive past me at the tram stop and there just something in my head just clicked and I just felt like these people are just driving straight past me at the tram stop and it's bucketing down with rain. Why are you not stopping to give me a lift? And it was just like this final straw in my head just went, these people are not good people. They don't want me. Like, this is, you know, this is not like my own community where we would never let this happen to somebody. And I just decided there, I don't, I don't like this anymore. I don't want to do it anymore. And so, yeah, I went home and decided I wasn't going back. And, I mean, that was, that was sort of the end of one chapter and the opening of another really because I very naively kind of just assumed you stop going and your life goes on the same. But, in fact, that's not what happened. You get... Um, some pretty serious ramifications of not, you know, of not participating anymore. But, yeah, it really was just standing in the rain and watching them drive past me and thinking, you, you, you pick me up. That's what, a, that's what a good person would do. That's what a godly person would do. I mean, I look back at these people and think, can you imagine what they must have thought? It was this woman who just landed in their community, like, and decided she's going to university. Like, they must have been like, who is this? Like, yeah, I, I look back now and think, no wonder they didn't want to pick me up. Like, I was like, you know, <laughs> the devil reincarnated, really. Not that I thought of myself that way. But, I mean, can you imagine them having to say to their children what I was doing in their community? They would have been like, oh, Laura's here for university, but that's a really, really bad thing to do. You don't want to be doing that. And even, like, I look back at my sense of dress, um, it was pretty obvious fairly early on that I wasn't um, somebody who in who wanted to dress the same way as the rest of my community. So, you know, I, I would take their dress standards fairly liberally um, and I would tie-dye my own dresses. So, you know, I always had the right length dress and the right kind of, yeah, everything was always covered up, but I'd tie-dye it, you know. So it was always just pushing those boundaries a little bit. <laughs> and then, you know, probably when I was about, I'm going to say 18, I think I'd left home, I um, decided to make my own dreadlocks. So we weren't allowed to cut our hair. We always had to keep our hair really long and pull back in a bun, but I decided I could do that with dreadlocks. So I was always kind of <laughs> just pushing that boundary a little bit. So, yeah, it's no wonder they drove past me at the draft stop. <laughs> I asked Laura about the psychological and social ramifications for her in leaving the truth. Yeah, well, you know, as soon as I decided to leave, um, you know, well, it goes around the community, Laura hasn't been coming, Laura hasn't been participating. Where is Laura? You know, and they send people to come and speak to you um, to find out why you haven't been. Although in my case, you know, not many people did come to find out. I, in a lot of people's cases, they do send a lot of, they send the troops in to find out why you're not coming, um, you know, and to guilt trip you into coming. But actually in my case, 
there was one or two young women that came and spoke to me um, and they weren't very, they were pretty half-assed about it. They weren't really that interested in getting me back again, which made me more kind of determined to leave as well because I was like, these people really don't want me. Um, and But in my case it was mainly the family ramifications. So, you know, it gets back to your family that you haven't been coming in, and to your community that you haven't been coming and um, then very gradually they start to cut you off. So, yeah, like it would be things like I would um, – I would see my second cousins cross the street rather than walk towards me and talk to me. Um, they would pretend they didn't know. I mean, I remember being in the in the post office one day in my hometown and a lady who whose husband had been the head of our meeting, I said hello to her and she completely ignored me, just pretended I didn't exist and walked out. So, um, yeah, you, you no longer exist to these people. There's this very, um, very sudden kind of removal of love and affection and, um, connection. They see you as an embarrassment. You know, my family were embarrassed by me. Um, that was the primary emotion, you know, and they're, they're ashamed that you've left. They think, they very genuinely think that, you know, the devil's gotten into you and you're going to die on the outside and they pity you um, and they don't know how to deal with you. That's some of the shunning stuff is that they don't know what to say to you because to consider that you might have a good life is too difficult for them because what if I was to have a good life out there and and to have a happy life, what does that mean for their lives? Um, so, yeah, and, and you know, you, it's like being a refugee in your own country. It really is. Like you think about being not understanding things like how to use a TV remote, um, how to use a radio, um, how to put on a pair of jeans, how to, um, how to do your hair in any other way. Like you have to relearn everything. I mean, I'm very lucky that I was young. I, I still, to this day, am very grateful that I was young. You know, I was 19. Um, yeah, I, I, it's not uncommon for women to come out of the groups not knowing what you need to do to, in order to have access to money. Yeah, you, I guess the, the, for me, coming out of that group, you you just you spend a lot of years being angry about your treatment and then a lot of years just going, there's actually nothing I can do about it except raise awareness because nobody will answer your questions. Nobody will speak to you. People cross the road rather than speak to you. So you learn to be okay with the fact that there's things you'll never know. I think that you feel you will never be 100% whole. I do think it's so traumatic to leave and I think that the process of leaving is so hard that, you know, you do. I, I think a lot of people have PTSD. Um, and you have to relearn so much as an adult and there's so much secretiveness that I do think we always will feel like we're not quite whole um, and that we're still children in lots of ways. Um, but um, I, th I think that as time goes on, um, people are learning to speak about these experiences a little more and your podcasts like yours are helping too because they raise awareness outside our group about who we are and what we believe in. So that we can have um, conversations that are a bit more respectful and meaningful without them feeling like we're explaining everything from a base of nil. Um, yeah, I, I, I think we'll always be healing.
The impacts of the two by twos ripple out in more ways, and I'll leave you here with two examples to finish up this episode. Chris Johnston wrote in a 2014 article, quote, The sect was linked to the suicides of Narelle and Stephen Henderson, aged 14 and 12, of Pheasant Creek near King Lake in 1994. Narelle's suicide note read, We committed suicide because all our life we were made to go to meetings. They try to brainwash us so much and have ruined our lives. Laura also wanted me to know about a friend of hers, whose name was Samantha Fraser. Samantha was allegedly killed by her ex-husband, Adrian James Basham, in 2018, and he is currently awaiting trial for her murder. She, yeah, she was uh, the same age as me. Um, We grew up together. It's a really interesting story, I think, in what happens to the lives of people who leave. So Sam and I left around the same time. Sam married this man who was accused with her murder. And he, by all accounts, is not from the truth. But some of the behaviour that Sam tolerated from him is very, very similar to the behaviour inside the truth. Um, And it has me thinking about how we're raised and the behaviours we tolerate and the lives that we were raised to live in and how actually there's a lot of harm happening to people who've left as a result of the lives they were raised into. Um, and Sam's a really good example of that. Yeah, and I think a lot of um, a lot of the, the relationship between Sam and her husband has not yet become public, but I think um, there was a lot of things in that relationship about power and control and coercion and tolerating things which were clearly wrong that are the way Sam and I were, were raised. Um, and her husband was not in the truth, but he certainly um, used the fact that she was vulnerable in ways that would have triggered the same responses that we were raised with. So, yeah, I guess um, I guess in contemplating that, it's, you know, our lives that we're never safe from it, um, that we're vulnerable to being abused again because of where we've come from. access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod, or with a one-off donation or merch purchase. Details at ltaspod.com. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was written by me, Sarah Steele, and researched by Hayley Gray and myself. Music was by Joe Gould. Thanks to Corey Green of Transducer Audio for editing. A very special thanks to Laura McConnell for sharing her story and to Chris Johnston for sharing his investigative reporting with me. Laura McConnell's website at lauramccoonell.com.au has lots of information about her experiences and other sources relating to the movement. This and all my information sources are listed on the episode page at ltaspod.com. I'll update the show notes with any court case developments once they can be reported. If you've been impacted by child sexual assault within the 2x2s, there's a website called Wings for Truth at wingsfortruth.info, whose mission is to support victims and survivors. 
Thanks again to Audio-Technica, presenting partner for Season 4 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top-quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out their stuff. Their range of earphones and headphones is quite ridiculous, from true wireless to noise cancelling to professional studio, and they're known for some of the best sound around. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult, or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au. And you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com. If you or someone you know is in crisis or needs support right now, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 in Australia or find your local crisis centre via the International Association for Suicide Prevention website at www.iasp.info. Thanks for joining me and hope to catch you again next episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.